Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Spilling the Truth. Today's episode is brought to you by Bluefish Design in Scottsdale, Arizona. Bluefish Design is your full-service marketing ad agency. They can work with you on logos, branding, website development, your mobile apps, whatever it takes to take your company to the next level. Uh, check them out online. They're awesome. They're really fun, hip, young, fresh. Uh, www.bluefish.com. That's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode, all about Barolo. Uh, Barolo is my favorite wine of the world. Uh, we figured this would be a perfect wine to pop a cork out of to launch our show on Twitch. If you want, you can actually go and watch this archived on twitch.tv, uh, Spilling the Truth. We really hope you enjoy today's episode, and we hope you learn a little bit. So thank you very much for tuning in. Enjoy. Dude, I'm excited. These are going to be such good wines. Oh, shit. All right. I think everything's up and running. Audacity's if, going if, in. If not, we'll just have another episode with no sound. Right. Do you want me to check on the phone? No. All right. I think it we're good. It looks like I see, I see sound. Yeah, sound. The mic's on. Camera's Audacity's on. Audacity's running. We're good. Cool. Sweet. Let's drink some Barolo. Let's do it. All right. Spilling the truth. Episode number 28. Is that really what we're at? Is 28? 28. Huh? You know, I kind of had this vision of drinking certain wines during certain benchmarks of the show as we got to certain layers, levels, like it's almost like you just unlocked an achievement. You get to drink Barolo today. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how I was picturing it. But we've moved at a different pace because we said, okay, by this episode, we're going to go video. By this episode, we're going to do this. But we just kind of launched video at episode 28. Just, we didn't really, it was, I guess we were talking 25 was our original goal, maybe? I think that's where we were at. I mean, we had set goals, and then like most people, you get close to your goal, and then you just kind of go from there. Like, we, the goals that we set, we've hit certain ones, we've done well, you know, how many, how like our Instagram was set, the webpage, the blog, video now, all this stuff, you know. And uh, when it comes to the wines, I know we, we sat down one time, and we put a whole schedule up for like months of everything we were going to do, and we followed it like two days, and then we just bailed on it. Because sometimes you just feel like, hey, you know what? We're going to do Barolo. Yeah. <laughs> or I mean, Nebbiolo. We, I mean, we had some random guests along the way also that we changed up what wines we were going to do on our schedule. But we really should come up with another schedule. But I really want to do something special for the first launch of the True Video. Granted, yeah. we, we recorded last week video without sound. Without sound. <laughs> so, Whoops. Oopsie. But... I'm really excited about taking this now to the next level, having this actually archived on multiple video sources. Um, I think one of the things we haven't been able to give our, the people listening is the video, Yeah. giving them the visual representation. We're actually talking about what we're doing. We're, we're talking about putting it in five different types of glasses and you just describe it, but they can't see the glassware. They can't see the face that I make if it's absolutely disgusting or if you really like something and you get deep into thought and the squinty eyes, they don't, they don't understand how terrible some things can be or great and, you know, it's good to have a visual idea of what you're watching sometimes. It's always crazy to see somebody you've listened to on the radio, podcasting, whatever, that you have never seen them face-to-face or see what they look like, and then you see what they look like, you're like, man, your voice does not match. <laughs> right? I have seen some people on the radio, like, randomly, and they have that super deep voice, and you expect a big, burly, jacked, whether it's, like, actually, not even a jack guy, just, like, a big, burly dude, and it's, like, this tiny little human being who has the, like, deepest voice you've ever heard, and you're like, how the hell did that happen? Rick Atsley. The Rick Ass has got a weird look. Gotta get Rick rolled. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. I wonder how many times he's been Rick rolled in his life. I'm sure plenty. Yeah. But when you see his body versus his voice, they don't match. 
No, they really don't. So the reason why we kind of decided to choose Barolo for this, a lot of times we have different themes for these shows. We will have uh, beers. We'll do it about a region. We did one on Starita Hills and Santa Rita area. We did one on just Cab. We did one on Malbec's. We, we try and come up with one general theme and then go on to a million different topics along the way. Yeah. But one thing that, and John and I argue on a lot of podcasts, we have a lot of, not really argue, but we, have, we disagree with each other and we debate a lot. There's one thing that no matter what, we never debate. We both love Barolo. Yeah. It's, it's hands down the one grape that you and I universally love more than anything else. And it's the one that like, no matter what, vineyard it is no matter what producer it is we're always going to find something that we really enjoy about it and usually always always agree on it it's just it's the one thing that like brings us all to the table or brings you and i to the same exact point every single time you know and last night we had dinner with your father and it was a very interesting conversation in the beginning and it's something we have to really really remember is that a lot of the public doesn't understand the old world versus new world regional varietals on the label your father is a person who Still to this day, looks at a bottle of wine and he's looking for the name of the grape. Yeah. He's looking for Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Chardonnay. Yeah, we spent, what, like a good hour and a half, two hours trying to get him to understand the DOCs, DOCGs, why, you know, there's Sangiovese all over Tuscany, but each city, each town, each village has different names for it. And he was just sitting there just really like, wait, what? This is Sangiovese? That's Sangiovese? I can't believe it. And every time the light bulb went off, like he got it, then we gave him another like little piece of information and totally threw him for a loop too. Oh, he, he totally, there was a few times where he was just like, I don't get it. Like, but that's the way it is over there. I mean, a lot of it is very, very confusing. When I started studying wine, I always said it was more about geography than it was about anything else when you're learning about European wines. Yeah. It, you were learning about towns and rivers and mountains and yeah. it wasn't learning about Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc. It was no. learning about Bordeaux, Burgundy, the Rhone, the, you know, everything. Just, it's all geography. Yeah. I mean, we could sit here and say, you know, Barolo and you and I, if anybody comes up to goes, oh, I love Barolo, you and I immediately go, wow, awesome. That's great. But everybody else will look around like the average consumer is like, what's Barolo? Oh, well, it's the best of Nebbiolo. And then there's also Barbaresco. Well, what's that? Oh, that's also Nebbiolo. It's just like a little less quality, but more drinkable now. And then they would see this and go, well, what's Nebbiolo to album? You go, well, it's still Nebbiolo, but it's a little less than Barbaresco and not as good as Barolo, depending on who's making it. And they'd be like, well, it's all just it's just all Nebbiolo. Why do they keep calling it something different? And I mean, how many times we sat there last night when trying to discuss, well, this Cabernet is really good from this area, but it's not as good from this area, but you can still say Napa across the entire board. There's no specific, yeah. this cab is better than that cab. Like when I, if I have a red wine and I say I'm drinking Burgundy, you know it's in my glass. Yeah. And Burgundy is a huge region. But yeah. if I have a red wine in my glass and I say I'm drinking Napa, you have no idea. Be anything. It could be anything. It could be a blend of 17 things or it could be a single varietal. Yeah. It could say Cabernet and it's actually 24% another varietal they threw in there. It's because they're allowed to do that up here still. Yeah. Where over there, there's a lot of rules that go into, if you're going to call this wine Barolo, it has to be 100% Nebbiolo out of this specific area, this specific region, and really this specific town. In, Tiny in, region, too. Yeah. Yeah. Not very big. You could probably, if there was a golf course on it, you could probably make it around the entire thing in like a very short period of time. But when you start to learn it, it actually makes it much easier on the consumer. And this is where I'm going to go with this, is that if you fall in love with Napa wines, you can go to a store and buy another Napa wine, and you're getting something completely different. If, you're, if you take a trip, a honeymoon, a, a, a boy's trip, a girl's trip, and you're over there in Europe and you're enjoying a, a town's wines, a small town, you're just going through and just, my God, we went to 27 towns. This was my favorite town's wines. You come back to the United States, you're like, man, I wish I could find that again. 
you probably can just buy wines from that town. They're all going to be very similar. Yeah. The white wines out of Gavi are Gavi. Yeah, it's Gavi. <laughs> yeah, the white wines out of, you know, that's just the way it is in Italy. Or If you like the white wine in Barolo, odds are you're drinking Arneas. Yes. So odds are, no matter where you're getting it, what is it? Do they have Arneas de Alba, the Asti? Ro- Ro- Roero Arneas. Ro- it's is all Arneas. Consider the, the best area. Really? But along with the rules, even producers that... So, you have Roero. Roero makes the best Arneas. Mm-hmm. But if my winery is in Barolo and I happen to make Roero Arneas and I pick my Roero Arneas and I move it over to my winery in Barolo and age it and ferment it over there, I can't call it Roero Arneas. I have to call it Lange Arneas. Just fun hearing I, you say Roero. <laughs> because I didn't ferment it or I didn't age it in the same town in which it was picked or the same See, region. That's crazy because there's a lot of guys who can't afford to be in Napa. So they just pick their grapes in Napa bring it over to Sonoma or Paso Robles and they just truck it around. I mean, I know there's some wineries that pick their grapes in, you know, Mendocino and truck it all the way down to Paso Robles because it can make it there in time. Ferment it and they're still saying Mendocino. Yeah. But I yeah, mean, you, I remember who you were telling me, Orlando has a very tiny warehouse in... He has, a, ba- he has a, he keeps a barn, basically, because his winery is in Doliani, but he keeps a barn with so a leaky roof so he can... Ages Barolo barrels in there. That's crazy. Like that's such those those laws would probably make most people go crazy because you have to follow it to the like strictest letter of the rules, up to the point where you literally have to make it in the boundary of those rules. I mean, I had a buddy that used to make. Uh, he does Pinot Noir in California, and he'd get some Alexander Valley. And when he went over to pick it, he had it was a race for him to drive it up and over the hill to get over to his winery before it started like naturally fermenting or yeah. anything started happening to it. And it was always a race getting over the hill with this wine. But when it was all said and done, it was Alexander Valley fruit. Yeah. Yeah. And you see or, that. Or Anderson. A lot. Or Anderson or wherever it was from. Well, I think how many, it was, I think how it was many Anderson, wineries but. these days? I think I was at, man, I can't remember which one I was at. I know John Anthony kind of does it. And there was another one. Their wineries in Napa, but they pick from everywhere. Mm-hmm. They had Knights Valley, Alexander Valley, Russian River see? for the Paul Hobbs has that. Paul Hobbs is in Sonoma and they have Russian River, Fort Ross View, Napa, Alexander, Benefit. They probably have some stuff from Oregon now. Can't do that. And it's actually very common for certain people that have really beautiful cellars in, say, Barolo, that if somebody happens to make a little bit of Barolo, they'll rent them space in their winery. Or, you know, my friend, because when we were there, they'd be like, oh, just ignore those barrels over in the corner. You're like, why? They're like, oh, those two barrels are this guy's and those two barrels are this guy's. But they can't call it Barolo unless it's aged there. Yeah. So that's got to be frustrating if you're, you know, in a town in, you know, Barbaresco or I mean, I know it's not crazy far away, but you have to constantly drive just to go check those two, three barrels that you made all the way down the village, you know, because you have to have it aged over there. And especially with the rules of everything else, your Arneas. Like, what if you're uh, a great producer? Your your winery's just just outside Barolo. You make a Barolo, you make a Barbaresco. Like Gaia, where's Gaia's facility? Do they have like ten facilities because they make so many different wines around the area? I mean, he's Barbaresco. That's what he makes. But he doesn't. They don't have a Barolo. I'm pretty sure most of his stuff is either Barbaresco or uh, their blends. He does okay. a lot of his own unique stuff. He makes almost like a super Tuscan-esque yeah, blends Tuscana. in Piedmont. So his is a little bit different, a little different style. So let's break this down. So Barolo. Barolo is the king of Italian wines and the wine of kings. Yeah. So we say it's the king of Italian wines primarily because this is the wine that is their flagship in the whole country. Now, the people in Tuscany might argue with you. But when it comes to talking about uh, Italians arguing who's got better wine, yeah, go for yeah. it. <laughs> but but really, as far as ageability, uh, global history, 
Um, there's just something about Barolo that it's really, I mean, you're talking about, you know, the name Barolo and name Nebbiolo has been around now for, you know, anywhere from two to 600 years, 700 years. I mean, I think it was 1200-ish is when Nebbiolo was first documented. And then, you know, you have about the 1600s, I think, when uh, the first uses of the words Kanubi, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Yeah. So, but Barolo is pretty unique because of their crew system and the way they set it all up, similar to France. But let's break this backwards a little bit. So, the grape is Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo gets its name from a lot of different rumors. A lot of rumors. Um, I say that there's two main rumors that I believe. One is because the grapes do have like a foggy look to them during tarps because of that uh, the film on it. Mm -hmm. And Nebbia is the Latin word for uh, or fog. Yes. Yeah, Italian word for fog. Nebby, ne is it Latin? Yeah, it's Latin. Yeah, because I, I had I, my the ones I had always heard was the fogs that come into Piedmont, uh, like you know, as that because you know the, the I don't know what they call it, but like um, kind of the same thing with uh, San Francisco, where the fog like comes in from the bay and like moves up, same thing, like it and settles it, in there, and they're like, oh, well, this area's you know got a lot of fog to it, a lot of nebby. And and this is one of the hardest grapes to grow. It's the first grape of the year to bud. It's the last grape you pick. So those late fogs actually really help protect the grape. Yeah. The reason why some people say it's not associated with the fog coming in is because there's no other varietal that's named after a regional weather pattern. Yeah. Usually, they're, if you're going to name your varietal after something, typically it's, it has to do with your grape. It has to do with the size of the berry. It has to do with the color of the berry. Ne Negro, Negro the Amaro. Yeah. Like, there's, it's always something that has to do with the actual grapevine. It rarely has anything to do with the, the, weather, the weather patterns. Yeah. And that's why some people say it's, it has nothing to do with that. But I think it does because that's what helps protect it and what makes it special. One of the things that really is important for Nebbiolo and why it really grows so special in Piedmont and you really can't duplicate this anywhere else in the world. It is one of those few grapes where, you know, if you plant Cab or Chardonnay anywhere, you're going to get Cab or Chardonnay. It doesn't mean it's going to be the best Cab or Chardonnay, but it's going to be close enough for you to be able to sell it and drink it. If you have Nebbiolo planted in some places and it doesn't work, it's bad. There is nothing tasty about it at all. Like there is some, uh, there's a couple vineyards here in Arizona of Nebbiolo and they were all terrible. I mean, they're all bad. I'm not, not even going to say it otherwise. It's all bad. The only guys who are doing a good job is actually a rosé Nebbiolo because it's just not good enough to be a red wine on its own. And I've never found any in California that I've liked. I've tried a lot from Santa Barbara. I've tried the few vines that they have in Paso and Sonoma. And I'm just like, it's not this. It's not even like Nebbiolo to Alba. It's not the cheapest Nebbiolo you could find. The cheapest Nebbiolo I've ever had in Italy is still better than any Nebbiolo I've had from anywhere in the world. Not saying there's not somebody that's doing it. I've heard of some great stuff in Australia, but I just it's just such a fickle grape. It is. I mean, and I keep saying that it's one of the few things that I actually support global warming about. Yeah. Because global warming is actually making Barolos better because every year they always had to pick the grapes early. They had to because they were worried about those frosts coming in. They were worried yeah. about the bad weather, worried about, you know, cold weather coming. And you didn't want to lose your whole harvest because you decided to hang for an extra week. Yeah. Because one bad evening, you could lose your whole harvest. So often they would pick just a little too soon, which made the wine sometimes a little more aggressive, a little kind of ornery, hard, hard. And this way, then they put it in big oak barrels. And that's why one of the reasons why they said, you need to let Barolo age 10 years before you drink it. Nowadays, I don't believe that's as true because they've backed the oak off. And because of global warming, they're actually picking Nebbiolo later than ever before. Right now... At, I have friends that live up there and they were like, literally, 
I've never picked this late. And they're like, the grapes are coming in beautiful, big, juicy, no problems whatsoever. So the fruit is getting better because of it. Now, yeah. I'm sure it'll hit a point in which it'll get worse and worse. Well, you know, of course, it's global like every warming. Other, every other bell curve eventually is just going to be too hot. And then because we don't want it to be napatized where it's, you know, 16% alcohol massively over macerated. And yes. then you have to use a ton of oak just to kind of tail it down a bit. This year, I'm really worried about the wines in Europe because of this heat so wave. Hot. Are we going to have nothing but raisins that are going to come out of Europe? They need a nice cold snap to come in August or September. Yeah. And we'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's, it's been bad. I mean, the heat is really good. Um, fluctuations in heat are even better because when you have big fluctuations, it allows the acids to develop in the wine. And that's what makes a wine really great and complex. A beautiful growing season with hot weather is actually not bad as long as you get a good amount of rain and you get some decent fluctuations. Yeah, tail end to cool down a little bit. But when you get some really nice up and downs, just that's one of the reasons why the wines coming out of Chile and uh, Argentina are so good because they have hot days and cold nights with the Andes. Yeah, I mean, honestly, even in Arizona, once they get this thing figured out, those 60 60 degree swings sometime are insane. It could be 100 degrees and then that nighttime drops in the 50s and 40s out of nowhere once in a blue moon. But, you know, going from a 100-degree day where that grape is, as long as you've got the right viticulturist or uh, anologist, you know, keeping it nice and, like, shaded, it's not getting sunburned. And then if it goes from 100 down to 70, it's going to keep that acid up. And in the middle of the night when it's 60, 50 degrees and the acid's real high, it's great. It's exactly what you want on some wines. So when it comes to Italian wines, they're some of the scariest to learn because there are thousands of varietals. They don't even know what the hell they grow half the time. <laughs> they're still trying to figure it out. In fact, this just happened with Barolo, um, which I don't know if you knew this, but there's different clones of Barolo. Mm-hmm. And when I was selling this one producer's Barolo, we made it very clear that one of the Barolos he made was with a very specific clone of Barolo called uh, Nebula Rosé. Now, Nebbiolo Rosé is not rosé wine. It's actually, there's, there's Lampia, Miquette, there's different clones of Nebbiolo, and they, they do different things. Some of them have tighter berries, thicker skins. The rosé clone tended to be a little more floral. Very few people grew it. We had a guy named Elvio Cogno, which was from the southern region, and one of his wines was 100% rosé clone, and we used to talk about that. It just got proven that it is not related to Nebbiolo. Ah, Interesting. And so now there's a controversy as far as a lot of producers don't want to change it because they've made a Barolo for 30, 40, 50, 60 years off, this, off clone. this off this clone. And they always thought it was just a different clone of Nebbiolo. And now all of a sudden they just figured out it's not. That's interesting. I'd be intrigued. I, and then now that you know it's not that, are they? you think they're going to push for them to say either uproot it and get rid of it or you got to change it to a totally gotta change different, different name. name. Yeah, that's so they're going to change this grape to that. maybe Nebbiolo Rosé Barolo. Or they're, they're, they're trying to figure it out right now. Of course, they'll probably argue about it for the next 40 years. But. Of course. If somebody will get bribed to some back door saying, no, I'll keep this. Yeah, it's, blah, that's blah, blah. crazy. I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, I'd say that most of what's planted is Miquette and Lampia. Um, maybe 5%. Is what you see out of there is going to be Nebula Rosé, but yeah, maybe five percent. I'm going to say okay. that's a so, rough guess. So that's still a good a lot. It's, a, it's still a good amount of vines yeah. that they're going to be really like wondering about. A lot of people that make Barolo is now. I mean, technically, shouldn't call it Barolo. That's crazy, but it's got to be. It's got to be close enough because if you have uh, a, a like this Barolo and you have that Nebula Rosé Barolo. And if people are like, oh, yeah, like for years and years and generations, they probably were like, well, they all are close in, you know, flavor or style. They all last as long. Clearly, even though it's not Nebbiolo, genetically, it's got to be close to a relative or something that made it last that long. Seven years ago, I was teaching Barolo classes and I was teaching people that Nebbiolo Rosé is just another clone of Barolo. That was part of the class. It was talking about the different clones. and. Yeah some of the Psalms that would show up would actually ask about the wines we'd have and ask about what if we knew the percentage of clones that are in them or what type of clones, and this is something we needed to know. And so 
when people got a chance to try the rosé, they were actually pretty excited because it was one of the lesser known clones or one of the lesser used clones out there. I think it was a little more difficult to grow. Um, I think it's a little more perfumey it comes out. Interesting. Yeah, it's that's got to be really tough in the future is when people start really genetically testing things and it turns out things that everybody thought yep. were one thing aren't. And this is huge, especially in a place like, bro, like this isn't in California where it's like, oh, it's Cabernet. It turns out it's actually something different, just similar to Cab. They're like, whatever, we'll tear it out and plant Cab. You're talking about an area. Do they even allow them to rip out vines and replant Nebbiolo? Like, let's say all of a sudden they find this whole row is this Nebula Rosé and they want to actually use, you know, what was the one with the M, Marquette? And they go, we want to put that one in. Do they allow them to tear up and, uh, and throw it, in new vines? Yes and no. It depends on the varietal. It depends on what's on the ground. There's things that are grandfathered in. There's things that as long as you keep growing it, you can keep calling it certain things. And you like, there's a lot of different rules and sub rules as far as what you can plant in certain areas. You know, when you're actually looking at the hills of Barolo, there's like little dips and little areas. Yeah. And they'll say that 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 little X out area is not good enough for Barolo. That some producers too cold or something like a bowl. Yeah, exactly. And literally, it'll be right next to one of the greatest Barolo vineyards there is. But 50 feet to the right, they'll be like, no, we can't do it there. And sometimes people put uh, Dolcetto there. They'll put Barbera there or other things. But some of them, maybe there was a producer that had done it, and then it got, they said you can't do it anymore, but the guys who had it there can still do it. So there's there's a lot of little sub-laws yeah. and shit along the way. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, you know, you're there for five, 600 years planting these things and knowing everything from generations being passed on to generations because there's got to be families that have, like, their fifth, sixth, seventh winemaker, and they're all the same, you know, daughter, granddaughter, grandson, so forth, down, 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 down. So they know that area sucks. We don't like the Brolo that comes from that pocket so clearly let's tear that out and either just plant some olive trees or dolcetto or anise or something but i mean what like a two three degree swing is huge Mm -hmm. in some places all right so so you guys all know where the region of this is this is going to be in the northwest of italy it's in a region around uh, alba or asti those towns it's a region uh called piemonte or piedmont it's weird why is it piemonte or piedmont uh, American pronounce American spelling versus the traditional spelling. Okay, so the Italians would say Piemonte, Toscana, Tuscany. Ah, good point. Yeah, uh, Brasilia, Brazil. <laughs> there's um, Trento, Trentino, Trent. Like if you're there, it's Trento. Okay. Like it's not Trentino. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So when you're there, it's it's not Piedmont. You're like, hey, I'm, so it's Piedmont. I don't want to get a burger down in Piedmont. It's no D. <laughs> it's just the T and the E. Piemonte. Yeah. Okay. Piemonte. Piemonte. So let's talk about the first one that we're going to have. We'll start with the Nebbiolo de Alba and then work our way to the big gun. Yeah, so the good thing about Italy that really makes their their best wine special is almost every flagship wine has a baby brother, and it's a good gateway drug into trying those wines. So even something as Amarone has a little baby brother that you can say, okay, I've never had an Amarone. I don't know if I want to spend $100, but I want to try this and see if I like this. If I like this, then I can step it up a notch. It's this way in... Brunello, it's this way in Piedmont, it's this way in Verona. There's certain areas where they their their flagship wines will always have these little baby brothers. So Barolo has a big brother and a little brother, in it my mind. Has a and also has, has a, a sister, and also a sister and a stepsister, yes, step cousin. <laughs> so so you got Barolo, okay? And a lot of people can make Barolo. You can make Barolo from a lot of different regions. You can make it from not regions, but a lot of different little communes within Barolo, and you can. Blend different hills together and just call it Barolo. I mean, yeah. how many times have we gone to the store and bought Barolo? It's just Barolo. And that's it. Yeah. But the big brothers, 
you got the actual single vineyard names on them. Yeah. And these are very special, very source names. And some of these vineyards are very, very expensive. Some of these vineyards, only three or four people, three or four families own the whole entire vineyards and nobody else gets a chance to have them. That's what's crazy is that that's like certain families have just taken over certain hill sites to be theirs. Not like, you know, they don't do that in America or anything, but man, if you have a site that's well known, like a Kanubi or with a Terequio or ones like that, and that's yours, dude, that's just yep. solid gold at that point. <laughs> so, and then the little brothers are going to be the Nebbiolo Longe. So Longe is the region. Now, Nebbiolo is the grape. Now, if you take this grape and you say maybe grow it next door to where your Barolo comes from, or maybe it's your young vines, maybe it's an early release, maybe it's the same stuff that might be destined, but you just sort of like, I'm going to take a couple barrels and release it as my Longe Nebbiolo. It is often will be similar or the same grape juice destined for Barolos, but it's just a young version. It gives you a preview or a teaser trailer into what the vintage is going to yep. be like. It gives somebody a chance to try a badass wine and then they can make up their mind if they want to step it up to the big brother and kind of get going and i think maybe you should touch on that for some people for the people who don't know docg doc the way you were kind of explaining it to my dad the other night you know like the guy who sits there and picks his entire vineyard and he's got 50 barrels of kanubi but he wants people to know beforehand, so him declassifying it down and then putting out just two barrels worth of a... What, what would it be at that point? Would it be Nebbiolo de Alba? Or would it just be Nebbiolo there, there, Longe? There, there is Nebbiolo de Alba. There's Nebbiolo Longe. There's different uh, DOCs of Nebbiolo within Piedmont. So if you were taking your Barolo and declassifying it to try, would it be Alba, Osti, or Longe? Or I, think does it, it, I think it depends on the producer. Um, but most people would probably be Longe Nebbiolo. Longe Nebbiolo? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because this one being Nebbiolo to Alba. Alba's the south is to the south. Asti's to the north. Asti's I to believe. The north? They're only like 10 kilometers apart from each other. Uh, what's that in freedom numbers? <laughs> <laughs> Very close. <laughs> six miles? That's about six miles. Yeah, yeah pretty close. Miles. I mean, say that with Barolo and Barbaresco. I mean, and then right next to Barolo, you have another town called Barbaresco that has similar laws, similar rules, but their wine is a little different than Barolo. And so they call it Barbaresco, but it's got the same grape in it. So once again, it sounds confusing, but if you go to Piedmont and you're sitting around drinking their wines and you're loving them, these are the wines you're going to want to gravitate to when you get back to America. Totally. It's, the, it's kind of the same thing where, yeah, if you're out there and you're drinking the house wine and you try the Dolcetto, you try the Barbera, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, man, the Nebbiolo de Alba is amazing. Well, step it up to the next level, which would be a Barbaresco. And if you really like Barbaresco, well, then step it up to the next level, which is Barolo. And if you love Barolo, well, then start picking up vineyard sites that you like even more and more. So this varietal, like going back to it, so it only grows in this one little region, this one little area, and the government has identified it and said, you know what, this is our flagship grape. This is what makes the best wine. And if you do it this way, it turns out the best. And they've put these rules into place, and because of all those rules in place, the government has actually had to classify wines. So they'll actually have these little tiny bands around the necks. They say DOC or DOCG, and this says that it's guaranteed. And to basically just make it simple, it's a guarantee of origin. It says that this wine is guaranteed to come from this region. Is it a guarantee of quality? No, it's not. It's a guarantee of origin. Now, with that guarantee of origin is coming the quality. Yes. But just because it has a band on it doesn't mean it's always going to be the, oh my God, best wine you're ever going to have. No. One, it's always subjective anyhow. They're basically just guaranteeing that they made it this way, it followed all the rules, and there's not something else in this bottle that you don't expect. Yep. So for Barolo, they have to age it a certain amount of years before they can release it. It could be aged in a couple different types of vessels. It could be aged both in bottle and in oak. It has to achieve certain levels of... Um, when you grow the vines and you're growing the fruit, you have to go through certain things. For example, 
your vines have to be spaced a certain distance apart from each other. They have to produce a certain amount of clusters. You can't go over the amount of clusters because it's very easy to overproduce. If I was a Barolo guy and I was making it, and this was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and I was making a million dollars a year off my Barolo vineyard, but I realized if I put a third row down the middle of everything, I can now make two million. Hell yeah, I'm going to do it. And then yeah. if I put a fourth row down the middle of it and just piled them all together... Instead well, of having five grape clusters on a vine, I start doing six. All yeah. of a sudden, I get another thousand bottles. Yep. So all of a sudden, what happens is your quality goes down because your quantity goes up. And Barolo has identified people that have done that in the past and said, this can't happen can't in our that. region. You could do this in other regions. You could do this over the hill with Dolcetto, and you could do this with Barbera. Do it with Lange. We and don't you care. could do it with Nebbiolo Lange. But you can't do it with Barolo because this is the king of Italian wines, yeah. and there's rules in place. And there's no nothing like that in America. That's I we I know we were touching on this last night. It's so weird that, and I guess clearly you know you're talking about 500 years of history in this one region and over Italy, thousands of years of history with wines. But even in France and Spain and you know Germany's even crazier. Everybody has these really crazy strict rules on how to do it. Is it because they've been doing it so long? You think, or they all had to battle fraud? Because America hasn't had a true fraud instance yet with wine that might push people to do a ban to do you know specific sites like we have our avas you know yours napa county there's napa valley and then there's rutherford oakville whatever but i have yet to hear of a a fraud the same way there was like that brunello gate or spanish wine was being brought over to provence's rosé and they were putting that in and shipping it off and they clearly go after them maybe it's because of the people that there's there's certain cultures in which it has been more acceptable over the years to get away with things. You know, it's very common over there for people to try and pull the wool over someone's eyes, mm -hmm. you know, where, I mean, it happens over in Spain, too. It is weird that you say this because you have not seen a big scandal where they unveiled a warehouse with 7,000 bottles of fake Screaming Eagle. It's always 7,000 bottles of some champagne or them taking some Prosecco and putting it in champagne bottles, or yes. uh, putting Syrah and Cabernet in your Brunellos, or yeah. <laughs> buying some crazy Tempranillo and bottling it as Cote d'Arone and selling it as your Cote d'Arone. I mean, it's always something over there. It's never, you never hear it here. So I wonder if over there it's more difficult because they know the wine so well they can tell the difference of if they drink a Barolo versus a Nebbiolo or whatever. But in America, people just buy a label and they don't care. It changed so often. What the prisoner used to be to what it is now isn't the same. What Maomi is to now, Silver Oak to now, nobody cares. It's more of Americans are just buying labels. I think, well, a lot of the rules were put in place because of the American market, because it's all about exports. It's about money. And the, the higher the quality and the higher the confidence in the global perception of your wine, the more they're going to buy. As soon as the global perception of your wine drops and they think your wine is, you're doing something shady, the overall sales of your region are going to go down. If three people get caught putting Syrah in their Brunello, do you think all the rest of the Brunello producers are going to suffer? Yeah. Fuck yeah, because then everybody's going to be like, oh, I heard they're putting Syrah in all the Brunello now. I'm yeah. not going to buy it. I think, I, I do wonder though too though, like while we say this might be a fraud thing, do you also think maybe that it was a collective group of people that all looked at each other and went, you know what? Let's make our pocket the best pocket, and we know the law people, so we can draw this board up, and we'll and be the best, and therefore we'll claim the best. Like, could you imagine, as an example, we're going to use California, if the people of Oakville all of a sudden took over governing boards in the area and said, we're going to make the Oakville the number one Napa cab, so we're going to make a specific DOCG-style law, 
And we're going to say that if you're going to say Oakville, you can only have 90% cabinet and then, you know, blend the rest. And we're going to charge everybody 250 bucks a bottle or more. And we're going to say we're the best. But we are the best producer. But once again, it comes down to the global export business. The United States does not make its money off the global export of wine. No. That's not where we make our we money. So, like 5%. So, 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 you know what? There might be scandals that go on that we never hear about because it's, it's in some province in China. And the guy's got some warehouse filled with fake Screaming Eagle or... Heights 76 or whatever, but you don't hear about it here because we're here. Just like I'm sure that it has to do a lot with the exports and the, the global markets. That's what it's going to come down to. You know, if the, if the global markets are in super high demand of your wines, there's going to be more frauds. Yeah. The global markets aren't in demand of United States wines because they're in, because they're buying Burgundy and which I, I, I would, it's interesting only because. I feel like more money is sold in America for wine prices, 10,000, 5,000, 6,000 for those French wines. And then Screaming Eagles, two grand, Scarecrow, a couple grand, like they're clearly getting there. And it's so easy to get away with the fraud out here, but nobody's really doing it. I mean, they got that one guy, Rudy, and he got caught, but what did he do it all with? French wines. A lot of, yeah. Yeah. A good portion of it was European wines. And in all honesty, if somebody did it out here, it'd actually be easy to do. Like I've I've been lucky enough to have Screaming Eagle, and it tasted like graphite and oak. And like I wasn't overly impressed by it. Maybe it's just not my style. Maybe it's not my thing. But if you want to replicate silver oak, just buy a bunch of you know Napa Cab. You could buy Sonoma Cab I, and just oak the hell out of it, slap it into some silver oak bottles, and ship it off, and nobody's gonna know the difference. You know, we do some fun wine parties. Yeah. And every year, like we come up with some fun themes and stuff like that. I feel that we should. We could almost do a spot the fraud party. That'd be interesting. Where, where we could have everybody bring, like a bunch of different people bring, say, nice bottles, like kind of like our 21 over party or something like that. Yeah. But we take one bottle off the shelf back here or one of our collector bottles or something from AZ Wines and we fill it up with some 2025 uh, Temecula cab blended with some Paso Zin, blended with a little this, cork it up, show up to the party and say, all right, everybody, spot the fraud. I've got one. How about we buy a kit wine, make that, and then put it into like... Or try and convince people. Like, imagine show up to a party with like an 82 Lafitte that's filled with some shit from <laughs> Temecula and having everybody go, oh my God, this is the greatest wine in the world. Yeah, we could do that. No, because it, it happens. We could easily do that. Yeah. yeah. And then at the end, be like, nope, it's Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> <laughs> which which isn't Mad Dog. <laughs> which actually, we learned this week that Mad Dog isn't the real name of that. I've never tried that before, and I hope to never try that. <laughs> I hope, yeah, you don't want to. It tastes like like hot lightning and... <laughs> <laughs> isn't lightning already hot? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, all right, so, so getting past the whole fraud thing, clearly the nice thing is, is there is a faith in this little band right here so that people do know what they're getting. Mm-hmm. And then I guess from there, you know, now that you know that, all right, I know that this is going to be Nebbiolo or whatever that's in this bottle. Same thing with Br- uh, Brunello or what's that? What's that one down? Soliche that's got the DOC on it. That's a Negro Amaro. You yes. know what you're getting. So at least there's some faith in that. And then from there, it's just up to you and your taste and see what you like more. Well, I also was we were talking to your dad. I was like, you know, if I give you a Syrah, it can come from anywhere in the world. If I give you a, a Cabernet, it can come from anywhere in the world. True. If I give you Pinot Noir, it can come from anywhere in the world. I give you Barolo. You know exactly what you're getting, where it's from, what's in the bottle, everything. This is why those European laws, as difficult as they are to kind of learn in the beginning, they're, I think they're way better. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a great example of you and I both know we love Barolo, but the one thing that I do like a lot, I actually like Brunello more than anything else, which is fair because it's obviously the better one, but I really like Vina Noble de Montepulciano more than I do Chianti. 
And I just like that one. And it's just all Sangiovese in the end. It is kind of ironic to me that the one grape that Italy was so known for forever and a day, because it was never Barolo to me. It was always Chianti, and it was always the wicker basket thing, which is probably the worst quality thing on the planet that came out of Italy. So now that obviously things are getting better, I think more. I think the next biggest wine, if not the biggest wine out of Italy to America, is Prosecco. Yes, it's uh, got to be Prosecco. Uh, Pr- Prosecco's guy, I think, has got to probably be the biggest wine out it's of Italy. It's got to be passing Champagne at some point too, probably because it's inexpensive the, and it's still good. The, the global consumption is insane on that, but you got to remember also. You think about you ever sat at a all you could drink mimosa bar and watched how many bottles they go through on a Saturday so or a Sunday at like yeah. a resort. I mean, you use Prosecco in that. You're not using Champagne in that. I'm glad the global market doesn't know about Barolo or Nebbiolo in general as much as they do a Bordeaux, California Cab, or a Burgundy, because this to me, again, I think hands down, probably best grape on the planet right next to Pinot Noir, if not a little bit more, because this is more my preference. But it's got the same qualities as Pinot Noir. Every hill tastes different. Every slope is different. Every way it's made is different. It's just so crazy like when we eventually do the protatories and how insanely different they all taste and it they keep the prices at relatively low compared to a burgundy like i don't think there's a thousand dollar barolo out there there's probably a 500 dollar barolo out there but burgundy has a hundred bottles that are over a thousand bucks yeah it's it has the demand globally but not as high as some of the french wines yeah you know me personally i'd rather drink this then again i love burgundy so there is something really special about Burgundies. I, I have yet to have, holy crap, Burgundies. I've just never had that experience. I've had one Premier crew from Pomard, and all the rest are just your basic village ones. All right, so now we talked a lot about the region, the varietal, DOC, where it's from, that we love it, and we got all, like, you know, friendly with it. Let's get even more friendly with it. Let's talk about it. Why, why is this your favorite varietal? What so, makes... You go, holy shit, I would rather drink this over something else. So the first thing to me that threw me off on Nebbiolo was the look. And the first time I saw a Nebbiolo, I thought this was going to be a light, easy drinking, Pinot Noir style, maybe Gamay style. And then my brain was prepared for a light wine. And I took that first sip and it just kicked my ass. I was like, holy crap, that is one of the most tannic and acidic wines. And I think that's one reason why I absolutely love it. I love tannin in wine. I actually enjoy that puckering sensation. It makes me feel like there's way more to this. And the other thing, I think the overall thing, great nose, great taste, but it's so complex that I can never, I don't think I've ever had a Nebbiolo that tasted something that reminded me of the same thing. For instance, when I we were doing like our Cabernet episode, I don't like the floor of Napa Valley as much as I like the mountains. But I could tell the difference between the two, but I've never had a Cabernet where I went, wow, how is that so different than that cab that's over there? It's all cab to me. It's just all, you know, here's the ceiling. It's all there. I, I like all of it. It's good. I like the mountain a little bit better. But the Nebbiolos are all over the place. I'm like, oh my God, this one tastes like mint. Oh my God, this one tastes like fresh potpourri. Oh my God, I can't even tell you what this tastes like because there's 60 flavors and my brain can't figure any of it out. Yeah, it's when, just different. You know, when you try some wines, some wines are flatline. Some wines yes. kind of go like this or up and down with the flavors. Nebbiolo, it's got more peaks and more valleys than any other wine I've ever tried. Absolutely. And when it goes in your mouth, there's such a difference between the beginning, the middle, and the finish. Whereas with, say, a a big Cabernet or a Pinot Noir from America or Zivendel, there might be like, oh, it tastes like a little bit of fruit and then it gets a little dry and then a little more fruit and then it levels out. Whereas really for me, Nebbiolo is like, 
Like and, there's, and that could happen while you're drinking it. Yeah. It could be terrible up front. It would be great in the middle. And all of a sudden at the end it gets muted. And you're like, wait, what What just happened while I was drinking this? For me, the, the defining factor is with these wines, with especially Nebbiolo, is one, you look at it in a glass, you can see right through it. You know, I Which mean, it's, crazy. it looks like Pinot Noir. So yes. you're looking at it, you're like, oh, it's going to be a little wimpy wine. This is going to be kind of fruity. It's going to be like the Kunwas that we had last night. It's the five, six little white dude who turns out he's a UFC fighter. Yeah. You're like, yes, this is the, like the little pit bull or the, like the little, yes. Yeah. So you just look at it, like mentally, I'm like, eh, it's going to be kind of wimpy. And then you try it and you get hit with all this fruit up front and then it pulls a 180 on you. You're like, oh, it's kind of fruity. Oh, my God. My mouth just grew a five o'clock shadow. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't realize my mouth could turn to velvet. (laughs) Yes. I Give me a board. I can sand it right now. (laughs) (laughs) So this is what it's like to be a cat. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The way a cat's tongue feels, the way your mouth gets, literally a couple seconds in the drinking Nebbiolo. For me, I get that hit of acid. Like across my lips, the back of my eyes, but not enough where it's tart, like that bitter, oh God, I don't like that. Just enough where I can feel it and then boom, there's all the tannin just ripping all the yeah. moisture. And now my mouth is watering like crazy. That's what it's it does. It's such a weird thing to happen. So, so it's like fruit up front, bone dry, and then you the, the finish begins. And the finish sometimes can go 30, 40 seconds where you're like, yeah. it's fruit and all the saliva starts coming back and then you get one flavor and then another flavor and then another flavor and then another flavor. And you literally sit there going, what is going on right now? Is this like an everlasting gobstopper? Yeah. <laughs> like how many flavors am I going to get? So I will tell you, trying this right now, the Nebbiolo de Alba from Bruno Giacosa, I smelled toasted bread, fresh bread. I tasted a strawberry, or excuse me, smelled strawberry Pop-Tart, strawberry pie. And then all of a sudden it's kind of going into that potpourri orange rind. Tasting it was fresh strawberries followed by immediate gripping tannins on the side of my mouth. And then this, I can't even tell you what the flavor is still hanging on. It's weird. It's stuff like I haven't had, I have probably never had whatever this flavor is in my entire life. And I can't even bridge the gap to tell you what it is. So I've got 20 different flavors, nine different noses, and it's freaking delicious. And I'll, I'll be honest, also, these are one of the few wines I refuse to decant. And we've had this discussion multiple times. And you know me, I'm sometimes yeah. I'm, I'm all about decanting things. Like I stick my you thumbs the in the bottles play. and I give it the, the, the shaky shake sometimes. But with Nebbiolo, with this wine, as I'm sitting here, this wine has changed three. I've literally had seven sips and it tastes like I've just tried five different wines. Yes. As it's changing and developing. And there's not a lot of wines that could do that. Why would I pour it in a decanter and skip all these fun steps? Yeah. There's so much going on in this. Like, why would I watch the last episode of Stranger Things? I want to watch the whole season. Yeah. You know, like, this is literally like picking up a great novel and reading the last chapter. Like, if, you, yeah. if, if you're pouring it into a decanter. Yeah. yeah. You know, whereas... It's the cliff notes of what, those books that you know. Yeah, those totally. Cliff notes back in the day. Yeah. Where, whereas, you know, with this, I mean, literally, this is a multi-part series book. Like, like this is... Yeah, I mean, we're on book three of 12 as we're drinking this right now. And the one thing about it is it's like Pinot Noir can obviously do that, too. I have never had a cab where from start to end, I went, wow, that was a drastic change. I like like it's not even the same wine. It's not even the same realm. It just got better. It was still the cab. And you're like, "Ooh, this is this is rounding out more, more the that muted violet I had is now really fresh violet. Ooh, that like crushed blackberry sort of there. Now it's like real like a pack of blueberry like it just gets better versus nebbiolo i mean we sat there at dinner that one time and you poured me and i immediately was like this is corked and you're like it's not corked this is just the way this thing smells and i was 100 percent convinced it was corked then all of a sudden i was like oh this smells like 
like a forest. And then by the end of the night, I was like, it smells like it was the best one. Yeah, it was really piney. Or it was the pahe. It was either the I think it was the pahe. Yeah. And at the end of it, I was like, oh my God, it smells like if I was at the base of a forest and the wind came rushing down and I got that fresh forest smell and like dirt while I was like eating some citrus right by me. I was like, what the hell? Like that was the weirdest. That's what really solidified my love of Nebbiolo was that dinner we had at Atlas with that pahe. I love the fact that we both have those epiphany moments with wine. We drink a lot of wine. How many bottles you and I open together with friends and family and just podcasting? And a lot of them I remember. A lot of them kind of get blended together. I have a great memory when it comes to what I've tried over the years. But there's those certain dinners, those certain wines when you go, oh my, this is not... And like, when, for me, I have my epiphany wines. I could tell you, I've heard you tell this story about this Barbaresco a couple times, and I could tell that that is like literally like your That's epiphany. That was that was the one that solidified my Nebbiolo love. Yeah, I have that with uh, a Napa cab and a and actually it, let me rephrase that it was a Napa mountain cab. The first time I had a Napa mountain cab, I went, "Oh, that's what a cab should be," versus this overdone, overproduced dust stuff on the floor. The Nebbiolo has never once disappointed me when it's a good producer. I've been disappointed by Nebbiolos from like you know just a mass produced guy that ends up at like. A Trader Joe's or a restaurant for like 15 bucks, like a bottle or something, because it's a very cheap thing. And you're just like, uh, all right, that sucked because I want more. But when it's a good producer, I get excited. It, it's like a new episode of Stranger Things. I'm like, yeah. I know what it's doing. I don't know what this episode is going to be like, kind of a thing. It's one of those few grapes that just constantly changes, gear changes, grow everything. Like it's just never the same. So, I had had a lot of Barolos. I've been a Barolo junkie for a number of years. I've been collecting them for a number of years, and I had a pretty extensive collection going there for a while. The nose on this is crazy. I know. And when I started the job with Vias, I got a, my hands on a bottle of 2008 Canubi Barolo. And I'll be honest, it was my first time ever having Canubi Barolo. I didn't know what to expect. I bought a, I remember I bought a six pack is what I did. And usually what I would do is I would buy a six pack of bottles. I would open one right away. It would tear all the freaking enamel off my teeth because it was so tannic and aggressive, and I'd be like, I'm going to lay this down for seven years. And it would go in the cellar, and I would forget about it. The first Barolo in my entire life that I opened the bottle, I went, holy shit. I, I literally drank that whole bottle that night, opened a second bottle, and went knocking on neighbors' doors at 1 o'clock in the morning to drink it with me. <laughs> People are like, what are you doing, Damien? And I'm like, you got to drink this right now. It's drinking so good. And people are like, dude, I'm sleeping like... Do you think Tim's up? I'm going to go knock on Tim's door. And people are like, dude, what are you doing? I was like a crackhead. But I had never had a Barolo before that had sweeter tannins that was drinkable right now. And that, that was right upon release. Woo. That's it's my first sip. It's super tight still. Now, so the one thing I'm noticing about this, obviously beyond the quality, the color's different. This is a little bit darker. There's that sweet tan that you're talking about, to me, is you're right. There's that fruity... It's like a real tart fruit that's not ready to be picked yet. Like uh, like the strawberries we get in Arizona, like where there's a little bit of whiteness in there, where it's still tart and stuff, but in like a real refreshing kind of a way. But the tannins on this are way less than actually this one to me. I agree. Like these feel yep. like bigger tannins. This is more tannic, but the tannins are more fine. It's like kind of comparing like pebbles to sand kind of a thing. So when the, the nose is way more complex on this than this one. One of the main reasons, one, the vintage. 10 was a vintage that was one of the most user-friendly vintages that Italy has ever had. Yeah. During my 
time drinking wines. You know, I'm sure in the 70s and early 80s and other times when I wasn't drinking wine, they had some great vintages. But 10, you had to be an idiot to make a bad wine in 10. I wasn't the hugest fan of most of the 10s, personally. They, didn't, they lacked acid. They lacked complexity. They were so perfect for Americans because they were juicy. They were upfront, fruity. Do it now. They were perfect. I preferred 9s and 11s. My opinion is not the general public's opinion. Yeah. So, and I always tell people, my first rule of wine, don't ever believe me. Believe yeah. yourself. Yeah, that's all that matters is what you like. But the nice thing about it was is that it gave the, everybody the ability to try something and say, oh, I like that. I really like Nebbiolo. And then one year, I wonder, though, they might catch that weird off here where they're like, ooh, wow, that's way, that's not what I thought. I can't believe how aggressive this is. You know, it, it could definitely throw people off. I constantly recommend everybody to try Nebbiolo. And, it, dude, it's such a huge mixed bag. Some people go, wow, that is awful. Not that the taste awful, but I can't do it. I can't drink that. My mouth is so dry. I need a glass of water. The acid's too high on it. And it sucks too, because everybody at a restaurant, if they get a nice bottle, is going to get the newest one. And you're like, you gotta sit on it. Like, honestly, this is a 2013 Nebbiolo de Alba, which for any other wine, you know, 2013 should be where you're drinking it. This could have probably aged another 20, 30 years. Yep. So what's really special about Kanubi, and I bring Kanubi up, and you'll hear us talk about it a lot on the show, is that so there's communes in areas all over Barolo. Now, it's a very small area. And so, so when I talk about these communes, they're not very big. Kanubi is 15 hectares, so like 30 acres. It's a tiny yeah, hill. It's tiny. 15 people share property on this hill. Some people literally have one row or two row. What actually makes this specific vineyard the most sought after vineyard in all of Barolo is because the soils of the South are actually different than the soils of the North. Southern Barolos will taste different than Northern Barolos. Keep in mind, 10 kilometers, not very far. No. Like this is, but the, the wines are, can be drastically it's literally different. literally what, six square miles. It's not so, a big so, area. So where the soils of the North actually meet the soils of the South, where they come up together is Kanubi. Kanubi actually has soil from three different geographic time periods layered into it, and it's the only vineyard in all of Barolo that's like this. It's basically like the uh, the Dum Dum. That's the mystery where the flavors are kind of yeah. banded together, and they cut that piece off. Yeah. I mean, this, this is this is the best of every world. If you love the Barolos of the South, and you love the Barolos of the North, and you love the Barolos of the East, Kanubi is where they all come together, and that's why this vineyard is so special. Now... So people have lobbied to expand it, and there's a lot of been a lot of controversy. But of the original 15 people, they do make what I consider the best Barolos in all of Italy. Now, there's which is interesting though, because isn't Canubi like there's different parts of Canubi, right? Like the hill has sections on. This it. is the 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 stuff that's been done recently too to expand it to add additional names. You know, like Canubi Dash Boschkis. Yeah, the Boschkis was the one. There's like correct. that one up at the top of there's 10 vines there's that looks not, like the spine of the mountain. They actually expanded Canubi from like 15 hectares to like 30 hectares recently too. Hmm. Now, I'm talking about the original. The, yeah. This is lobbying. This is people that are like money. Money talks. Money talks. Yeah, yeah. that's what it comes down to. But does it have to say something different, or yes. is it like it'll Kanubi usually be a, they'll, they'll typically Kanubi. be a hyphen, there'll be a hyphen on there. Okay, so Kanubi is the original yeah. Kanubi. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been, it is definitely the most approachable, I believe, of all the Barolos I think I've ever had. Um, not only does it taste amazing, you know, you only have so many producers. I'm a fan of the northern stuff. I like the more aggressive end of the Barolos. 
Uh, so I like like the Terecrio, or I think there's another one farther up the Saralunga, um, like those like the far northern ones as they get bigger. But this is where to me like yeah, you're like, right. There's more to this because of all those soils and everything coming together. Well, you got the the kinds of like Monforte di Alba. You got uh, Novello. You got I mean there's there's Within those communes, there's multiple vineyard sites. I mean, like, so yeah. like Busia actually covers multiple Busia. communes because Busia is the biggest of all the vineyard sites. Yeah, the Brick del Fiasque or the uh, Montaguero or uh, what's the one that begins with the C that we have from. Uh, I'd love it because it's all Italian names. I could just make it up and nobody would. Oh, like, yeah, look, come on, game. It's like, yeah, that one. <laughs> as, as, like, all of a sudden, now that we're on video, you're going to get called out all the time. <laughs> That's not right. There's somebody Googling, like, you're an idiot. <laughs> You've gotten better at your pronunciations, too, I feel. Oh, it's just all about how you hit things. And just, yeah. But just in general, even when we started doing the podcast, man, you were butchering stuff at the beginning. You sound like you've actually, like... Well, we haven't done German and French episodes in a while. I think, so that's, that's, why, much why. I think that's why we haven't done German episodes. Oh, God. Even just doing the uh, the Gruner the other the day. Gruner was brutal. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. Ugh, my brain hurt after that one. So, the, so to me, the Kanubi has this nose on it that is... It's like a, it's a weird processing center. Like, I feel like I walked into a, a fruit processing center because I could smell like the linoleum, like a fresh cut tile floor of like in granite. But yet there's like fruit being done in the corner and there's this dusty aromatic in the air. Like, I, it's just the first thing my brain thought of was like, I, I worked at one point doing donations for uh, St. Vincent, to, uh, St. Vincent or St. Mary's, one of those food banks. And I walked in and they had just built it. It was brand new. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is really nice like floor, but it was an all vegetable and fruit produce kind of an area. And that fresh fruit smell that was brought in to do donations, this kind of reminds me of that. And it just changed the like, as like I smelled it right now to just straight up like ripe, like perfectly ripe cherries. It's very tight to me. And this is, this, very is, tight. this is probably the tightest bottle of this producer in this vineyard that I've ever had. Usually right out of the bottle, the, the wine will progress over the next 12 hours, but usually right out of the bottle, it's drinking pretty good. This is drinking pretty good, but this is like a tight fist. Yes. And that's how I feel like it's there, but I feel like it's all restrained. It's all hiding. It's like trying to come out, but it's all locked behind this door and I can't find the key right now. Yes. Yeah. It's like you can, you can look through the keyhole and I, you can see I, the I know, lights. I know it's all there. Yeah. It's just, I had, Yeah. Yeah, like now it's kind of coming off of, I don't know if you ever had as a, uh, a kid, there were these like s'more puffs. It was a chocolate puff. The middle was marshmallow. There was a little dash of raspberry or strawberry in the middle and a graham cracker. It smells like that right now, like this candy I used to have as a kid. I love these wines. I mean, I, I don't think you could ever go wrong with Barolo, but it's such a very particular wine for people. It is scary for people that have never had it to just say, I'm going to go try a $50 bottle of wine. I mean... For an average consumer, that's a good amount of money to spend on, you know, 750 milliliters of liquid that you're going to dome in a night. Like, yeah, I could buy a lot of hazy IPA for $50. You, you can know. get a keg at the right place for that. Yeah, and so for an average person going, man, I'm, I'm used to drinking this bottle of Cab for 15 Why would I go spend this bottle? I could buy five bottles for the price of this one. And it's tough sometimes for people to get into it because there is, they just don't know. True. And the other thing is, is it's not the American palate's wine. If you're a cab drinker, I don't think you're going to like Barolo. I mean, it's aggressive, it's tannic and acidic, but there's not that crazy oaky flavor. There's not that jammy characteristic yeah. that Americans like, that really concentrated, macerated, jammy characteristic. This still, it's weird. For all the flavor in there still is light, 
but it has all the punches of a heavyweight, all the tannin and all the acid. But like body wise, it's not a big bodied wine to me. It always comes into that low medium area. I've never had, with the exception of like bad Nebbiolo, where I was like, wow, that has a huge amount of like a Syrah, like an Australian Shiraz has body. Napa Cab has body. This has all the punches and everything, but it's just not big. Yeah. I mean, I would say like a consumer that has never had Cabernet could walk into a store and say, hey, look, I'm going to buy this California Cabernet, California Appalachian. It's $6.99. I'm going to try it. Ooh, this was pretty good. I'm going to try another one. And I'm going to try now one from Paso. The Paso Cab is $14.99. This was even better. Now I'm going to try Sonoma Valley Cab. Oh, shit. This is amazing. I don't, everyone keeps telling me Napa. Well, shit, Napas are like 40 Well, you know what? I just tried everything else and I loved them. Now I'm going to try the Napa. Whoa. Now I just had my epiphany moment. I just tried a $40 Napa Cab. Now I want to try the Rutherford. Now I want to try the... And you can kind of go yeah. up. You can kind of go up. And with Nebbiolo, there's not a lot of those... There's very few. Tears. Yeah. You, you, you get Nebbiolo Longue, then you start getting the Barolos or Barbarescos. And even Nebbiolo Longue, they're, they're not out there for five bucks. No, they're not. They're, you know, I think some of the cheapest ones are still 20-something dollars. Correct. You're, considering most European wines still come over here and you can still get super cheap ones or super affordable ones, Nebbiolo you're still going to pay for it because it is still a fickle grape to grow and it only grows in one part of the world. Yeah, I mean, most inexpensive cab right now is actually coming out of Washington for the most part. And I'm starting to see Argentina cab creep in. You know, you see cabs from around the world like on certain prices, but people, yeah, can get California cab anywhere and it's going to be good. Washington cab all over is going to be good. And you, you're right, you have little baby steps you could take to get to a point where you go, oh, well, I like $5, like $10, like $15, $20, $30, $40. The ones we were selling at um, AZ Wines was, I think the cheapest one we had was $21 was the first Longue mm -hmm. Nebbiolo. And then the good one, the Vietti, is a $27 bottle. $27 bottle at a Total Wine cab is going to be a really good cab. I mean, a or three good, yeah. three mediocre bottles. A, a restaurant pouring a Nebbiolo by the glass, that's probably going to be the same price by the glass as their high-end Cabernet by the glass. True. Yep. And in all honesty, it's not a great it's, Nebbiolo by no. the glass. If you're probably going to spend anywhere from probably 12 to 15 a glass for a, a standard Nebbiolo on a list. Yeah. And you're right. And it's not going to be always Vietti Probaco. It's not going to be GD Vira. It's going to be maybe some regional one that's just nobody's heard of that maybe somebody's just making that they're just like yeah. showed up with, you know? Yeah, and that's that's tough to kind of justify spending on something brand new you've never had. And you don't even know the grape. You don't even know the grape. I just, oh, Barolo? Oh, I don't know what that grape is, so I'm not going to buy this. You if People who buy Barolo know they want Barolo. Yes. People who want to take a shot at a new grape might see Nebbiolo d'Alba and still be like, I don't know what a Nebbiolo is. People will take a shot at having a Italian cab. Uh, they might try some Bordeaux. They might branch and try a Chilean Pinot Noir if they like Pinot Noir, but they don't know what Nebbiolo is. Right, but once again, going back to other regions, you could say, I'm going to try this $6 Chianti. I like this. Oh my God, now I'm going to try this Chianti Colisonisi. Now I'm going to try this Chianti Classico. Oh my God, now I'm going to try the Vino Noble. Now I'm going to try the Brunello. There's still a progression where you can start at $6 and end at 100 Yes. Unfortunately, with Nebbiolo, there just is no progression Yeah, like there's that. nowhere in the world. You can't try you Nebbiolo just say, from Spain or from Croatia or from Australia. Even in America, you can't find it and be like, oh, well, I like the California Nebbiolo. I guess I'll try the Italian Nebbiolo. No, it's just this. <laughs> so, I mean, we've thrown parties before. We talked about our different parties. We threw one that was uh, the Bees of Italy. You had the bang. Uh, it was called Brunello Barolo Barbaresco Oh My. <laughs> 
I like that. Yeah, so you had to bring one of those wines, and everybody brown bagged them and everything. So you could do parties around just the first letter of the wines. You know, if you're a Burgundy and a Bordeaux fan too, just tell people bring a wine that starts with the letter B. You'll probably end up with a good one. There's it's, not, there's right. not Bordeaux, Barbaresco, Barolo, Brunello. Put European. You have to bring a European wine that begins with the letter B. Burgundy. Yeah, maybe you'll end up with a Barbera that's mediocre. Ooh, Barbera. Yeah. But I'm just thinking as far as like, but everything else should be pretty damn good when it shows up. Yeah. So, but Nebbiolo grows a little bit in America, hasn't really taken root very well. Uh, they grow a little t- tiny bit of it in France, actually, surprisingly enough. Uh, the Armagnac region grows a little t- touch of it. Uh, South Africa's growing a little touch of it, like 15 acres of it. It's like one guy, yeah. There's a little pockets popping up in Australia that I have not had, but people that I've in the business have been talking a bit about some of these Australian Nebbiolos. I think it's like Knights Valley or Knights. There's, there's certain areas that people, were, once again, it's practice, it's trial and error, it's let's try this yeah. varietal, let's try this varietal, let's try this varietal, and see what works best. And that's tough on a varietal that needs a very long time to grow. Yes. Yeah, and you have to have all the right weather conditions working for you. And then even if you do have all the weather conditions working for you, and it's hard to talk because it's so tannic and my mouth is so full of like saliva, so I get this weird like, shah, shah, yeah, Sid, Sid the sloth thing, but so even if you hit and nail the weather, that soil, man, it's really going to take a weird note to it. So uh, those of you who want to learn more about Barbaresco or Barolo or Nebbiolo, there's actually a lot of great books that have been put out by, about this varietal that you can jump on Amazon and buy. If you want to read a little bit more about it, I sometimes have problems reading wine books because it makes me thirsty. And I don't read well when I've been drinking. I used to see these ladies would sit at the bar and they'd just have glasses of wine and read a book. I can't do that. I can't drink and read. No. Be, and if I read about liquid or liquor or something like that, it just makes me thirsty. Then I want to have a drink. So, <laughs> But I have done a lot of studying this region. Uh, George O'Keefe, there's a number of people out there that have put out some great books on this region. Well, so when you have the MGA, MGA? Yeah, that's put out by Rare Wine Company. Uh, and it's actually more of a technical book on the vineyard sites. It breaks down every vineyard of Barolo, who owns it, how many hectares they own, what's fa- like soils in it. It's a really great technical book. It's not good for the... Uh, amateur reader that just wants to sit down and read a fun book about Barolo. Yeah. You know, Georgia O'Keeffe, her books actually, I think is a little bit better. Karen O'Keeffe, sorry. George O'Keefe is a pain, she's a painter yeah. from, from, sorry. <laughs> what, uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, yeah, nice. What are your thoughts on like food for Nebbiolo though? Cause that's, that's another tough one too, in my opinion. Cause I think it's a very food specific wine. You know, I think about the foods up in the region, you know, Northern Italy has a lot of truffle. A lot of truffle. They do a lot with olive oils. Stews. Uh, you don't end up with a lot of red sauces in this region. It's not that way. A lot of the pastas will come with a, an olive oil base to them. Uh, more of them, almost like a, not an Alfredo, but almost like a white sauce kind of thing yeah. to them. But not Alfredo. Alfredo's not Italian. You don't get no. so. Uh, Alfredo's you, a Buca di Beppo or Olive Garden based thing. You end up a lot with uh, not carpaccio, but the the, the raw meat ball. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I say a ball because. A tartar, tartar. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, but, Rami. but a lot of times the tartar that you get in America or at a restaurant, you'll get like a small little piece, maybe there'll be like a little egg in it. You go over to Piedmont and you get the tartar. It's a piece of raw meat diced the size of a softball. Yeah, you're like, oh my god, I mean, it's the tartar over there is insane. But that's actually one of the things we've had the most in Piedmont. Tartar. Really? Every, like every, every restaurant served it. Uh, at Orlando's house, he had a big thing of it that he made. He's like, dude, I chopped that shit all night long. Yeah. I mean, like, the one thing I always knew from Piemonte food was a lot of lamb. A lot, a lot of lamb. 
you know, you don't get a crazy amount of beef and definitely not a lot of seafood, but like lambs was like a big thing yeah. for them. But you're right, definitely no red sauce in it. I guess you don't want to have something so acidic with an already really acidic wine. Like the wine itself can hit every single level of certain types of food as long as it's very specific to certain foods. So like, I mean, I tried having a Nebbiolo one time with some fish and I was like, this just, it just didn't work, you know? It would have to be a fattier, heavier fish mentally, the way I think about it. If I was going to have this with a fish, oh I would God, want it with swordfish. a grilled swordfish, depending on if, maybe a blackened swordfish. I don't know if you've ever had anything blackened, like yeah. a Cajun seasoning. Yeah. But honestly, I think it's something like uh, tuna. Yeah. If you take like a tuna, like a seared tuna, with like maybe a little blackening seasoning, or like that would probably go well with this. It, it's a bold wine. You, you can't really serve a flimsy, you can't serve Bronzino with it. But you can't exactly do well, a big giant peppered up steak though either at the same time. You know, like I think if you had like maybe a really rare. Maybe that's why tartare like, well is so served because it's so bland ish. I mean, literally, it'd be tartare covered with truffles with like olive oil, salt, and pepper. Dude, the amount of truffle that they use out there is almost ludicrous. Like they're just shaving money. Like here's, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's 10 bucks worth of truffle and on to the next thing. Yeah. And it's one euro over there yeah. instead of the. And a truffle as big as this cork right here is like. $500. <laughs> we were walking through Alba, the town, uh, right after uh, Black Harvest, Harvest of the Black Truffles. I thought they were white. They were the blacks when I was there. They were, huh. they, they have both, but they, they the, have the, both. The, oh, the, okay. the blacks, like, the, black, the blacks were just harvested. The whites were coming in like a couple of weeks or whatever. The white was the most expensive. These blacks were everywhere. Like there were, uh, <laughs> That's they were vending booths of people with troughs of them that were just like, I mean, I'm talking a full trough of like 50, yeah. 60, 70, 100 grand worth of truffles. And they were just like, oh, yeah, three euros for that, two euros for that, one euro and, for that. And how, and how did that area smell? Unbelievable. I mean, every shop you went into had some truffle product, whether it's, and it's different truffle products. First of all, those of you guys who don't know, the truffle oil that you get in America is rubbish. It's yeah. not real. It's fake. They might put a little piece of something in the bottom that's they're like, oh, it's really infused with truffle. That little piece that they put in the bottom that's, first of all, you can't really put a piece of truffle in the olive oil because what's going to happen? It's going moldy. It's going moldy. It's going to make it's it all moldy. Weird. Yeah. yeah. So what you're tasting, that scent, when you get truffle fries at a restaurant or you get yeah, truffle nice. whatever, truffle mac, no, 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 no. That's a chemical. That's fake. And they're adding it in. And to most Italians, it actually turns them off so bad. That was the one rule when the Italians came to visit. No truffle. Went to a restaurant. No truffle oil. Couldn't even have it in a restaurant. They could smell it in a restaurant. And it would turn them off for the next 12 hours afterward just because they smelled it. That one night I was working at AZ1 and Todd had an actual truffle. He had come in from Italy. And I mean, it was like half the size of this glass. Like it was, it was a good fist sized truffle. They were shaving it. The, the people ran it out the entire night at Atlas, and they had it on every single meal. And, dude, I'm, you know, 20 yards away at the bar in AZ Wines, and I could smell it as if it was next to my face. It was the most potent odor. Like, the chef, Todd, everybody came walking out, Oscar, and they were like, dude, it just smells of truffle in there. Like, we're getting high off of truffle. Like, no. It's crazy. I could, it's one of the most potent things. I just couldn't believe it when I was walking to Alba, and there were, I mean shops everywhere but literally like vendors on the side of the street with these giant carts just filled with truffles i was like oh, and I'm you can't get that in america you can't have that shipped out here don't you have to like you have to smoke that in yeah there was a number of people that i was with that were like all right it's it's like gambling if i buy 10 you're gonna expect to lose two or you know what if i throw 50 dollars on a roulette table or on a black say i, I put 50 dollars on black or red and it put on red and it hits i just want 50 dollars you're pretty happy mm -hmm. If I take a, f a 50 euro truffle 
and throw it in my bag and it happens to make it back, I just ended up with a $250 little prize in my bag once I got home. Now, I'm not selling it. I'm going to utilize it. Yeah. But it's the fact of it's just gambling. I mean, maybe they take it. Maybe they don't. I mean, I don't know if anybody can get a... If you're actually going to get arrested unless maybe you have like... I think they just seize it from you. They just take it. Maybe if you're notorious for doing it. It's not like I have like a... Seven monkeys, two goats, and a fucking tarantula in my bag. <laughs> I'm trying to like. Str- when is truffle season? Because isn't white truffle like October? When we were there, it was late spring, early summer, and it was like I said, the blacks were just brought in. Yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing to me that a truffle cannot be transported, or it can't be like recreated. You can't take a spore, bury it in the ground, and it just starts to produce again, like most mushrooms. It only grows in a couple places, and that's it. It's the most ex- one of the most expensive things on the planet by ounce next to like printer ink. <laughs> Vanilla. Vanilla is the officially the second most expensive thing on the planet what? right now. Yep. Wow. Global gl- gl- global warming and thieves are really destroying the vanilla market. Um, Where does vanilla grow? I think in like the South America, Central America, like tropical areas. I think maybe oh. over in like um, Asian nations that are tropical. Wow. So, but I'm like, they're like, like, but like the vanilla bean, I think it's like, yeah. it's like a thousand dollars a freaking ounce right now for like real vanilla or something like that. Wow. Cause, cause isn't, isn't Be- fake vanilla? It's beaver butt. Beaver butt juice. Beaver butt juice. Yeah. It's the caster sack out of a beaver yeah. that gives a uh, same d- chemical smell. When, when you buy vanilla ice cream and it says natural flavoring, it's not natural vanilla. It's natural beaver butt. Beaver butt. Yeah. Yeah. That's nothing better than eating uh, ice cream full of beaver butt juice. It's so weird to say, but it's so true. We've all been doing it for so long. Yeah. Right, I guess we got to start planting vanilla trees in a warehouse. No, I truly, this is an article that just popped up. I actually read it this morning. Um, I think it was on BBC. They were talking about how vanilla is the second most expensive agricultural product right now produced on the planet. Yeah, I really have enjoyed... Not beaver butt juice. No, that, no. That Kanubi. Yeah, the Kanubi's great. I've actually... Funny is I've actually enjoyed the, the Rosso more than the Kanubi right now overall because the Kanubi to me has just been so tight that I'm just kind of dumbfounded by how tight it is. Um, but I'm also the person that I will never decant it. Yeah. Now <laughs> and, we're going to let how that, that goes. That'll be just as good and, tomorrow. And, 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 right, the, better tomorrow. and honestly, the decanting comes down to the fact that I had an old bottle. It was a old Marion Dino single vineyard. It was maybe 14, 15 years old, I think. And I tasted it and it was stunning. One of the best Barolas I've ever had in my entire life. And all I could think of is I'm going to put it in a decanter and it's going to get better and i poured it in the decanter and it fell apart wow and we've talked about this story but the best way to describe it is this wine had spent all its time climbing that peak climbing that peak climbing that peak and it was on the highest peak it could be overlooking the entire valley when i poured it in that glass and by pouring it in the decanter i pushed it off the cliff and it turned to vinegar it literally lost everything in the decanter i mean it was as if i sat it on my counter uh open for like three days it just went to shit. That sucks, man. That's the worst when that happens. It's happened to me once, and I've never, I haven't decanted a Barolo since, I don't think. Old Barolo, though. You could do Old. it with new ones. But I don't think I even, I have. Well, I don't open too many new Barolos anymore. It's just kind of the way it is. You know, I haven't been in the Barolo business for a couple of years, and some of the Barolos I have represented in the last couple of years have been some ones that were more value-driven and not so yeah. collector-driven, so they weren't things that I really wanted to hold on to or drink or hold, like, they were just some kind of cheapos, which there are cheapo Barolos out there. Don't get me wrong. It's not like every one Trader is Trader Joe's has a $15 one, and it tastes like a $10 Nebbiolo. I don't understand it. I don't understand how they even got a DOCG on those. Right? Personally. Like, but. it's probably just one guy who's like, fuck it. Like, 
Trader Joe's, give me a million bucks. Because there's it. not, a, there's just not a lot of bulk juice that comes out of. It's got to be the youngest vines. Like everybody who has a super young, brand new vineyard's got to be putting some together, making eight barrels worth to give to Trader Joe's. What? Uh, let's talk about tasting notes on these things. What are you thinking for the Nebbiolo de Albo? From Bruno Giacosa. I mean, uh, alone, the color is amazing. I mean, that really light brick color, the meniscus, you can see right through. It's got that little bit of orange. Little touch of orange, old, like, brownstone brick on it. You could tell it's been aged. I can literally read a magazine through this. This actually magnifies whatever I just wrote on this piece of paper. <laughs> it's pretty amazing that I can, it's like, a, like I said, like a Pinot Noir or a Burgundy. Yeah. The, the, the nose to me is sweet and cherry. It's like cherry candy right now on the nose, and it wasn't like that earlier. I was going to say a cherry cola. Yeah. It's exactly like a flat cherry cola or like a, a cherry Pop-Tart because there's kind of a bready characteristic I'm getting, and it's not like bread, like not like a fresh bread, but like a pastry bread yes. kind of a thing. And, and it's this sweetened, compoted cherries. Yes. Or strawberries. Mm -hmm. Like if I was fruit, to have a... Red fruit. Yes. A lot of well, red fruit. Well, you kind of nailed it too when you said Pop-Tart because when you think about the filling of a Pop-Tart, it's that sweetened, concentrated fruit. Yeah, and it's funny because at first it wasn't like that at all. Like it was no. real muted back there. But yeah, it's one of those ones where uh, it reminds me a little of a Russian River Pinot Noir in a way. Because I get that sweet red fruit on the nose. But the flavors just totally different. When I taught wine, I teach wine about Barolo. One of the things I talk about as a goofing around, I always talk about the drool factor. Some people give wine stars or 100 points or 10 points. This, that. I used to talk about the drool factor in a wine. Sometimes you have a wine, and if you try and talk afterward, you end up drooling on yourself. And some wines yeah. are more prevalent with the drool factor. This has a very high drool factor to me. That's a high acid wine. Because it's my, my mouth went so dry, but then there was so much saliva. Like It went overboard, and it overcompensated for it, where literally you feel like, like I have yeah. to like... I've there, there's been a couple times when I'm talking and I'm like trying to hold back like the spit in my mouth because I'm like, dude, my mouth is just watering like crazy. Now, the to me, there's so much more fresh fruit and bright flavors in this now than when we opened it an hour ago. Trying to hold this over your white. Piece I, I, I talk with my eyes closed a lot, so yeah. My buddy used to sing songs. He's a local musician, and he sings with his eyes closed. And it was notorious for girls coming up and putting things on his mic while he had his eyes closed. <laughs> So like, and they'd hang up their underwear, their bras, or random things on his mic, and he'd sing a whole song and have no idea that it was sitting there on the mic. That's so fantastic. But I found from doing the Twitch show last week that I close my eyes when I talk a lot. Really? On the show, because I'm thinking. I mean, I think it's with wine. It's funny. I don't, I don't notice that you do that. Like, I just don't pay attention yeah. to, like, I subjectively don't see it. You blink your eyes a bit, but yeah, I've never noticed that. See, that was always my, my tell and my fake tell when I played poker. The blinking? The eye blinking. That's where it actually came from, is that I started doing it as a fake tell when I was playing in, like, big, massive World Series events. It was the, I'm thinking, and I would flutter my eyes as I was thinking, and I realized I was doing it when I had a good hand, so then I started naturally doing it when I didn't have a good hand, and I started doing it constantly when I didn't have a good hand as a tell, as a fake tell, and it kind of... yeah. I, it's bait and switching people, but, but but it's spilled over in real life. And yeah, you're right. I do it when I'm tasting wines. When I'm really thinking of, do I want to be honest? Do I want to bullshit a little bit? Do I? Want, I got a blank. I don't know. <laughs> it's just like poker. Yeah. 
Man, this Kenobi, dude. I got to go Holy back to it. Crap. I, I've kind of been... It's starting to finally like open up a little bit. If I pour it, like I can kind of... So the crazy thing is, is looking at both of these. All right, so I've got the Nebbio on the left. I keep digging that. Oh, they mic. look like two different wines. They, they totally look like... The one on the right looks like a Russian River Pinot. It's got that kind of violet tinge in the middle. You know, it's a little bit darker, but it still has that orange tinge on the end. So right. like to me, I kind of would think Nebbiolo just because the orange, but it's darker. There's more to it. Yeah, I mean, once again, you have a lot more oak in this wine. This wine's been held in barrels. Now, they've, they've backed the oak off of a lot of Barolos. So, so would they be modern versus traditional? Because Bruno no. Giacosa is a traditionalist. He doesn't use new oak at all. This is what happens. So you can, those of you out there, you can Google uh, Barolo Boys. Yeah, Barolo Wars. Oh, oh Barolo Boys. Yeah. It's, it's actually a term, and also part of it has to do with the Robert Parker effect. There it goes. But the Barolo Boys were guys that had listened to Robert Parker's propaganda on big, juicy wines and getting high scores, and they said, okay, we want our wines in the global market. They want big wines. Our wines are... They look a little soft. They look where they have power, but they don't necessarily portray that right away. So we're going to put our wine in some big, aggressive oak barrels. And this way, Robert Parker will give us a better score because yes. Robert Parker doesn't give little wines that look like this scores. He gives Shiraz from Australia high scores. He gives Napa Cab high scores. He gives Big Zins high scores. Which is weird because he gives Bordeaux's big scores too, which is such a weird thing. So... A lot of the Barolo guys went through a phase where they actually started over-oaking their wines for the global market. Mm. And this is where this whole... So first of all, now they're picking too early. Yep. They're over-oaking them. And now as a salesman, you're pouring it for people. And they're going, man, this is tannic. What do you do? Oh, man, it's not ready to drink for 10 years. And that's where this whole don't drink Barolo for 10 years bullshit started. Well, yeah, because I know the traditionalists would macerate for what, like 30 to 60 days on the skins to get all that out there and put it in what do they call botis, like those big, giant, massive 500, not even, they're like what, like a thousand gallon barrel, well, they're technically? Do, yeah, like right now, the, a lot of people are using 25 and 45 hectoliters. So they're ones that you and I could both stand up in, but we can't throw a party in. Yeah. Like we could we could slide this table probably into some into those and, <laughs> and, and, and we could actually do a podcast in one, yeah. but we're not having a party. Whereas when you're in Tuscany and you're in Vino Noble and you're looking at the barrels they have, those barrels are the size of this entire room. We could throw a 25 person party in those That's barrels. So crazy to me. Those barrels, a lot of those barrels will be 30, 40 years old. They build them in the wineries because you can't bring them in. Yeah. Uh, when we were at... We were at a Vito Noble producer, which has a cave that has a huge door, and they had these beautiful new barrels. And I'm like, look at the door and look at the barrels. I'm like, that's a giant fucking door. But there's no way they got that barrel in. And I saw him finally asked, he goes, no, no, no. It took them months, and they assembled the whole barrel in the actual See, winery. that's crazy, because we as Americans love tiny barrels, those little uh, barriques. Well, the reason be, the smaller the barrel, the more, oak. The, the more wine is touching the side and the oak. If you have a large barrel, there's a ton of juice sitting in there that's not touching the, the wood, the wall. Nah. Whereas in a smaller barrel, more is touching it. That's why whiskey barrels get smaller and smaller. That's why these people oh. that do uh, oak-aged cocktails here locally... They're not using any even. They're using little tiny little barrels because they barrels. really want that oak infused into their yeah. product. And it's it's interesting because 
I have never had that 1960, 50, like the old Barolas where like you need to let this age 30, 40 years kind of a thing. But these new ones, you know, they only macerate it for a few days, like 10, 12 days. They're a little bit softer. They're more approachable for the market. And they're still huge, like grippy wines. And it just, it again, comes back down to us being in America and the American market buying. Dude, that's tough when you're trying to convince people that, dude, these are, these are seller wines. They're not drinking wine. They're not meant to be drunk now. Drink your Albas, well, drink your Osties, drink your Longays. But if you're going to have a Barolo, you need it to hang for a long time. Here's another re- challenge they had. All right, so I'm a guy who's never had a Barolo before, never once. And some guy goes, you need to try Barolo. Yes, I'll try one. I went to the store. I just bought one. It was uh, $75. The guy told me not to drink it for 10 years. Bah, cool. <laughs> great. So I can't try Barolo for 10 years. Yeah, thanks. Great marketing out there, guys. Way to way to push your products into the global market. Yeah. Uh, and they hold it for what? Like four years before they, it even yeah, hits they, the market? Yeah, they release it on the fourth year. It's like, for the time they harvested it, it's three and a half years typically. Yeah, so they're on they their it. 14s or 15s it's, it's, right now? It's the spring on the fourth year after the pick. So it's three and a half years typically is when they release them. And Kanubi is slowly crawling out of its shell. It's crazy because I'll be honest, out of all of these that I've tr- I've opened over the years, they've never been tight upon release. This is the tightest one I've had, and maybe because it's gotten older. Also, one thing we've learned, and this is something you all need to realize, that if you're aging wines, they go through peaks and valleys, and we've realized this over the years, you and I, and yeah. I think as you and I get older and we age wines together more and more, we're going to see it a lot where we, we buy a, a case of a wine and we open one four years later and it's shit. Yeah. It's, it's dumb, it's doesn't muted, it doesn't like have anything. fruit, and, you're, and then you're disappointed. Then you open a second bottle like just because you're pissed off because the first one sucked, and this next one sucked. And then you're like, fuck. Then you wait a year because you're just mad. A year later, you open the bottle, you're like, this is one yeah, of the greatest was. things I ever had. Yep. And then you think, wow, maybe there's more dumb bottles. Maybe this is just the one special bottle. So you open another one, and that one's banging too. Yeah. So you're like, all right. And then the next year, you open it up again, you got another dumb one. And literally, wine will do this as it ages. Catching it up at Burgundies are well known. That's why some of these forums with Burgundy collectors are really important because they talk. They say, "Right now, the wine is singing. Right now, the wine needs to lay down longer." Yeah. And sometimes, if you're holding on to some of these great collector wines, you want to drink it at the best peak time. And sometimes, listening to other people really helps. Yeah. I bought three bottles of this one, 2008 Barbaresco. That was just. I drank it and it was just amazing. And then I drank another one a year later and it was even better. And I was like, holy crap, this is such a great wine. And then I think I opened one with you like two years ago and it had no flavor, no nose, decanted for four or five hours and it was just nothing. Yeah. It was dumb. It was, it, was in a, it was at the Mariana's Trench at that point. And I'm like, That's, I'm so mad that I did that. And the crazy thing is that won't happen if you have a super oaked wine. If you have a crazy oaked wine, you will always get that oak flavor, and there won't be the wine flavor in there, but if you have a massively oaked up shard or oaked up cab, you're always going to have that oak flavor in there. And maybe that's why when they collectors talk about peaks and valleys with the vintages over the wines over the years, a lot of time it is going to be burgundy because of those nuances and how they really do come out because it's not a heavily oaked wine. It's such a soft wine. It's such a... It's so beautiful. You're not tasting the oak. You're actually tasting the season and yeah. what's in the glass. And Whereas if it was a, a big fucking Shiraz from Australia, maybe it's probably not going to go through those peaks in the valleys because it's just been it's just blasted make it with American oak. It. It's just it's a, it's a street racing car. It's going to go from one end of the street down to the other, and then it's 100% falling apart once it gets there. 
So I do agree. This right here is just completely changed now. It's finally turned that corner of opening up. Like there's, it's a different. If I would have had two glasses in front of me, the the Kanubi right here that first came out of the bottle and the Kanubi I'm drinking right now, two different wines. Two different wines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Kanubi's finally getting out there. But you know what? Granted, I am against the canting, but sometimes you have to do it. And mm. I'm, I'm just, it just, like, if I got this at a restaurant, say I'm at a restaurant, there's restaurants that still have older that, vintage. That bottle would have been drank it, by now. Hopefully. I only, I have a two-hour window to drink this wine. I'm at a restaurant. I'm here with my friends. We're going to get an appetizer. We're going to have them open this bottle. And this is something I used to tell people, and this is one of my little secrets. Uh, waiters, if you're listening, this works really well. Um, people would come in, and I'd always say, oh, you're going to have a, you know, you want to get this bottle, that bottle? Are you thinking about getting a second bottle tonight? Let me go ahead and get it opened up. You're, let me open up your bottle you're going to have with dinner so it starts to breathe. Yeah. And for the appetizer course, I would often put multiple bottles on the table to start the meal because I would try and be like, you got to open it now and let it breathe. And then the meal would come and sometimes they'd already domed the bottles I opened for their meal and they had to get another one, thus doubling what I was making. Yeah. <laughs> Smart, smart well, way to do it. That's a tough thing about wine. You know, if you bring anybody a scotch while they're eating, they're going to be fine. It's going to taste the same thing. Same thing with a beer. There's a there's a science to when you need that bottle open. Because you're right. If somebody walks in and they're going to sit there and be like, "I'm a big Barolo fan," and you go, "Well, I happen to have a Canubi right now, and you should open it." But like, give me an hour. So like, let me go open that. I'm gonna put that off to the side. I mean, granted, as a server, you're taking a gamble. By the way, like that. They're going to drink that because what if they turn around at the end and say, well, we didn't actually want that kind of a thing. Well, then I'm putting the cork in it. You're taking it home with you. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> you paid for it. You told me to bring it. Yeah. Just like if you ordered some appetizers and you didn't finish them, fuck, that's going to doggy bag. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what's happening to that wine. That's actually what helped me get through college, man. I was working at PF Chang's and every time people placed orders and didn't come pick it up, I was like, yes, awesome. I'm taking home food tonight. I can't imagine how many servers right now are so blessed by Uber Eats because of how many people don't pick shit up. Or the oh, yeah. Uber Eats drivers just like, all right, sweet. They didn't get it. They canceled their order, and I got this food in my car. Thanks, guys. <laughs> all right, so tell you what. You want to wrap up the actual podcast and switch us over to here to Twitch for our, all of our final stuff? Yeah, let's do it. And we can continue this conversation? Yeah. Um, final thoughts? Uh, honestly, I'm super happy with both of these wine. I love this Nebbiolo to Alba. I think it's way more approachable for people now, you know, if they want to try some. Granted, I did age this wine. It is a five-year-old Nebbiolo because I'd imagine the 2017 is being released. But still, it's way more fruity. It's easier to drink. The tannins are hard and aggressive, but still good. The Kanubi, man, I don't, I don't have final thoughts. It's always going to be one of my top yeah. wines. It's never moving from the top 10 wines I have. It's just not possible. I, it's the Rock of Gibraltar in my top 10 wines. <laughs> well, this was our first strictly Barolo-focused episode. We did one on Barbaresco for... It was a holiday. It was Easter we did the Barbaresco. Yeah, and we're going to do the single vineyard ones coming up. We'll, we'll do some really fun ones. I mean, this is the favorite wine of John and myself, though we do love a lot of different wines. Yeah. Uh, we just thought it'd be fun to completely screw up our first video one by doing some Barolos. Yeah. So maybe we actually have sound on this one. We'll figure it out when we're all said and done. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but, but yeah, so my final thoughts are everybody needs to go drink more Nebbiolo. Everybody needs to take more risks when it comes to drinking wine. Absolutely. Try stuff that you're afraid of, and if you are too scared to just go out and buy it, throw a party and have people bring those wines to your house. Yeah, wine parties always fun. It always gives people to talk about. Something yeah, to talk about. really. I mean, there, have you ever been to a shitty wine party? No. 
I mean, because really e- even if the company is bad, <laughs> you got a ton of wine to drink. That's a good point. <laughs> cool. All right, man. All right, everyone. So uh, make sure you follow us on Instagram, Spilling the Truth Podcast. Uh, we have a Facebook page. We, uh, we will have a YouTube page. The YouTube page is not up yet, um, but the YouTube page will also be Spilling the Truth or Spilling the Truth Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Twitch. All of our shows will now be archived on Twitch. Uh, that's twitch.tv, and we are called Spilling the Truth on there. Yeah. Um, we are going to continue the show now in about 15 minutes. We will do an after show on Twitch for everybody to ask questions, interview us, whatever yeah, you whatever. want. And in the future, we will always do our podcasts live. Our podcast will be archived. So this won't actually go live on the internet for a couple of days, but you can always join us for the after show. And the after show is just going to be a lot of fun of us hanging out and talking to y'all and yeah. yada, yada, yada. Perfect. Awesome, man. Awesome, guys. Thanks, guys. Yep. Love Cheers. you guys listening. Bye.